you know, it'd be easier to say what isn't a concern <laughs> at this point. Everybody's saying, you know, they're looking at the at AI through the prism of their own pet peeves or concerns about the world. And so you have a very agitated sort of privacy regulatory community that says AI is the end, you know, the end times for these reasons. You have a cybersecurity community that says the same thing on their grounds. You have a child, a child safety mm. uh, lobby that says the same things. Everybody's got a beef with AI based upon their old traditional type of concern that probably already applied to the internet and previous media and communications technologies. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, should AI be regulated? Last month, Italian regulators banned ChatGPT over privacy concerns, while the European Union is planning new legislation to tackle potential AI threats, and the Biden administration has discussed a so-called AI Bill of Rights. But in contrast, the new UK government's AI strategy seems to take a relatively lighter touch, pro-innovation approach to AI. To discuss how we regulate AI, I'm very excited to be joined by Adam Thera. He's a senior fellow in technology and innovation at R Street, a Washington DC think tank, before that, he was at the Mercator Center at George Mason University, and he also had a stint at the Adam Smith Institute here in London. He's the author of 10 books, including a, a path-breaking, I'd say, quite influential work on, on permissionless innovation. But most recently, he's an author of a paper called Getting AI Innovation Culture Right. Adam, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I kind of want to start here on uh, like, what is AI, and, and is are we at the cusp of this kind of new technological um, era, as, as some are now suggesting? Well, that's a big question. And of course, it's a controversial one. As the new UK uh, report notes, there's no consensus definition of what we mean by artificial intelligence. And this makes it extraordinarily difficult to consider governance structures for artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, robotics, quantum computing, all of these things are coming together. We live in a world of combinatorial innovation where many different technological revolutions are colliding at once and they're all sort of coming together in the world of artificial intelligence. And so I think as a threshold matter, uh, I certainly have my own definitions of AI, but the reality is, is that we can't see any consensus among governments even on that question. And usually we have some when we talk about, well, what's agriculture or the steel industry? <laughs> But on AI, we we can't even find any consensus on this. There's dozens upon dozens of definitions of what is AI. Do you, do you do you have a do you have a favorite? I mean, you've got these kind of all these concepts that around that you have very little agreement about. Because arguably, you know, AI has existed for a long time. We we inter, we um, interface with AI every day when we use Netflix because Netflix um, uh, um, a suggestion algorithm learns from us and then spits things back at us. Uh, we obviously have this kind of next level AI we're now seeing with ChatGPT. Um, and these kind of neural net uh, systems that seem to be very good at putting out not only words, but also images and videos and all sorts of other things. Um, it does feel like something different. Do, do, I, I'm wondering, do you think it is different to anything we've seen before? Is this kind of more evolutionary than revolutionary? Yes, it is. Although artificial intelligence and machine learning technology is already all around us, the reality is, is that their power is accelerating rapidly. Uh, first, let's step back and I, I should have answered your question, you know, how do I define artificial intelligence? I have a, a short primer that I posted on Medium that I update every month. I'm on version, I think, 2.3, uh, an artificial intelligence primer. And I say, at root, we can define artificial intelligence 
as involving the exhibition of intelligence by a machine, obviously. <laughs> and machine learning refers to the processes by which a computer can train and improve an algorithm or computer model without step-by-step -step human involvement. So um, this is uh, basically all rooted in algorithmic and computational science, an algorithm just being sort of similar to a, a recipe for a dish, except it's a dish of code that we're putting together to create new services and applications. And the crucial thing about this process or these technologies is the fact that they are accelerating rapidly, some would even say exponentially, compared to the past when we had ups and downs in the world of computational and algorithmic science, and even long periods of so-called AI winters, where there was a lot of hype and then the balloon deflated and we moved on and plateaued for a long time. I think a lot of people today believe, and this would include me, that we're not going to plateau like we did before, that we're going to see constantly accelerating returns uh, of computational uh, capabilities. Before we get onto some of the risks and I guess the associated regulatory discussion, I'm interested in um, potentially kind of painting a more optimistic vision of what AI could mean for humanity. What, what are some of the potential use cases, some of the benefits? How can this, could this technology potentially impact our economy? Could it be, could AI be an effective economic savior? You know, what ends up boosting our productivity and, and means that despite having an aging population, we can still have higher quality of living because we can automate so many tasks? Or you know, what, is, what is kind of a positive future from AI? Yeah, a, a positive future for uh, artificial intelligence and robotics is one that enhances human well-being and longevity and provides not only greater conveniences, but a whole host of other types of meaningful improvements to our, our lives and our economy. Um, as I already mentioned, we see artificial intelligence and computational technologies already helping us in many ways, whether it's in the field of uh, financial services, um, education, aviation, you know, for years, the, the safety standard, the gold standard has been uh, an autopilot system that largely removes humans uh, out of the system and, and flies planes for us. Um, you think about on our smartphone technologies, we think of all the great artificially intelligent uh, apps such as mapping services that, that now help us in our lives in profound way, profound ways. But for me, the most important applications are health and medical related. And I recently served on a, a Blue Ribbon AI Commission for the United States Chamber of Commerce, where we did a lot of work looking at how we're going to potentially address cancers and strokes and heart attacks and uh, various other types of ailments by utilizing complex human-machine interactions to allow our human creativity and ingenuity to do more and better things for, for health and welfare by giving machines other menial tasks of tracking and comp uh, compiling data and then analyzing it. And um, I, I just am incredibly excited about that fact. When, when I was on this commission and visited the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the most prestigious medical centers in the United States, we heard from the head, the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, he had this amazing statistic. And he said that when he was studying to be a doctor in the 1980s, that the overall corpus of medical uh, knowledge, the overall uh, amount of medical knowledge was doubling, he said, in the 80s, every 77 days. He said, by contrast, today, the overall body of information, I'm sorry, it was doubling every seven years. He says, today, it's doubling every 77 days. So we went from seven years to 77 days. And he said, the only reason, the only way we're going to be able to take advantage of all of that information is through the power of machine learning to basically help humans better understand various types of diseases and ailments, and then try to come up with better, more tailored diagnoses that can personalize medicine and also provide medicine at a distance to populations that might not be able to access it. 
that's exciting, game-changing types of innovation that can really move the needle, not just in sort of economic progress, but on human well-being at a very, very deep level. So the, the, the positive future of AI is effectively AI saves lives. I, I suppose that the negative future we're hearing painted a lot in recent history is, you know, AI is, is the threat to humanity in, in some either more kind of uh, direct way, kind of Terminator style, the, the AI takes over, um, or perhaps more indirectly that it allows the proliferation of misinformation and fake voice actors and all that kind of thing. We, of course, saw that letter from uh, Silicon Valley luminaries, people like Elon Musk and um, Steve Wozniak saying, let's take a six month break in AI development. Let's deal with any potential issues. You have this question about the alignment problem. Will AI be aligned with us? Particularly what happens to humanity and what, what do we kind of an existential question is what, what does it mean to be free if you have this um, all-knowing, all-seeing kind of technology, not not too distantly in the future. What do you see? Is, what do you see as a, a negative vision of AI, and, and what is, I suppose, the kind of proportional threat here? Is it the end of humanity as we know it? Is is that you know maybe low probability, as some say, but high risk kind of scenario uh, playing out? Yeah, that's a great question. Of course, this is a, a there's a lot of different answers to this. I recently released a uh, a short piece on mapping AI policy issues for the R Street Institute, and I I divided into what I call seven AI policy fault lines, and uh, the key one that you just stressed uh, sort of is the macro level, high level concern about existential risk, and it's so amorphous and it's so ever changing, and it's so driven by unfortunately by science fiction narratives about, you know, Terminator-esque scenarios or 2001 scenarios. Um, and it leads to really extreme proposals like pausing AI or global bans and things like this, global government, government it, it, that I just think are illogical and unworkable. And I've written about that. It, it feels um, like I, to me, at least, they're kind of like the, the genuine kind of existential risk community who, you know, talk a lot about things like nuclear war and uh, issues like pandemics have kind of applied that to AI in a very dystopian way, but not a not a particularly realistic uh, kind of scenario here. Well, I think that's right, and I think, of course, risk analysis is very difficult when you're dealing with things at that level. I mean, obviously, there are these risks, but a lot of them are extraordinarily hypothetical at this moment. And you can really work yourself into a real froth over this if you're thinking through the prism of dystopian science fiction, which is all just uniformly negative and dystopian in character, right? Um, but I, I mean, let me let me give one cause for hope here. Um, back in the early 1950s, we faced a lot of these same concerns as the Cold War was beginning with, of course, nuclear technologies. And at the time, no less an authority than Bertrand Russell, who was arguably the most influential philosopher of, of his time, he said in a famous piece in The Atlantic called The Future of Man, he said, he predicted, quote, the end of human life, perhaps all life on our planet before the end of the century, unless the world unified under, quote, a single government possessing a monopoly over all the major weapons of war. Well, needless to say, no global government emerged, and yet we somehow managed to avoid catastrophe. We somehow muddled through, and we utilized a variety of mechanisms from treaties and accords to just basic types of communication and coordination mechanisms to try to figure out how to deal with these very legitimate risks associated with nuclear weapons, which is, of course, a risk that we had before with chemical weapons. Yeah. 
We didn't end up with global government then, and I don't think we're going to end up for it for AI. And if we did, I wouldn't want it. That would be a different existential risk. <laughs> Who's going to run that global no, another, government? Another dystopia, yeah. Well, what then are some of the kind of micro threats, I suppose, the more, more direct right. issues, things like you know, privacy and copyright, um, inequality, do we, are we give a lot of power to a small number of companies? Uh, what is the, the misinformation risk or, or factual? Like, how, how do you deal kind of conceptually with all those, all those other kind of potential problems we're now thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. So we won't have time to talk about all of them, but let me just reel off the list. You've already started that list. is again, is in my piece on mapping AI policy mm. threats. Um, number one, privacy and data collection. Number two, bias and discrimination concerns. Number three, free speech and disinformation issues. Number four, children's safety. Number five, physical safety or cybersecurity. Number six is a different one. It's workforce issues or traditional economic disruption, uh, workplace or automation concerns. And then finally, seventh would be uh, law enforcement and national security concerns. So, I mean, we could drill down deep on any of those, but of course we don't have time. But the bottom line is that almost, you know, it'd be easier to say what isn't a concern <laughs> at this point. Everybody's saying, you know, they're looking at, the, at AI through the prism of their own pet peeves or concerns about the world. And so you have a very agitated sort of privacy regulatory community that says AI is the end, you know, the end times for these reasons. You have a cybersecurity community that says the same thing on their grounds. You have a child, a child safety mm. uh, lobby that says the same things. Everybody's got a beef with AI based upon their old traditional type of concern that probably already applied to the Internet and previous media and communications technologies. And so I think this is going to exacerbate the, the drive for sort of heavy-handed regulatory approaches. And the real question is, can we deal with each of those concerns in a targeted, more sectoral kind of way? Or do we end up having a very omnibus, comprehensive, top-down, overarching regulatory regime for artificial intelligence, however we define it? Yeah, so let, let's get into that. How, how and, and then you talk about this in your paper, what kind of is the, the, the approaches we can take on AI regulation? Well, hopefully we do take the the one that I described a second ago, which is a more targeted sectoral approach, a, uh, a focused one that says, like, let's evaluate the problems as they come at us and figure out how to utilize existing state capacity to address these concerns and by adapting. Commissionless innovation. <laughs> that that's one term for it, although obviously not everybody would favor that that, that term because they think it means anarchy, but it doesn't. Uh, a more permissionless innovation approach basically begins with the idea that innovation should be allowed until such time as we find problems, and then we address them constructively, utilizing a broad-based toolkit of solutions. And what I admire so much about the UK report is that this is basically where the presumption starts. That, that innovation is treated more as innocent until proven guilty, as opposed to under a precautionary principle regime, regime where innovation is treated as guilty until proven innocent. And so this is at the heart, I've argued in my work, of all emerging technology policy debates, is this question of what's our default baseline for this new thing. And in this case, I think most of the world is flocking towards a precautionary principle type of approach um, and I think that's really, really unfortunate. It just is going to head off a lot of 
important life enriching and life saving innovation. Well, let's let's say something positive about the UK project. Often at a at a, a think tank like the IEA, we're, we're quite critical of of governments of the UK government, and you know there's always ways they could be better. Um, you're you've been quite complimentary of the UK's AI strategy, which was released a few years ago. Now, I think there's a lot to be quite liked in it. It talks about pro innovation, proportionate regulation, trying to be trustworthy, adaptable, clear, and collaborative. Um, I think it kind of makes this interesting point that there will be no new UK-wide AI regulation, but instead it focuses on um, context-specific regulation focused on outcomes. Um, and, and it makes the, the point quite persuasively that in a lot of ways AI is already, reg is already regulated, is always going to be regulated, be it through Equality Act and anti-discrimination law, be it through GDPR and privacy, be it through the UK's extensive existing medical devices regulations. Um, my, my two thoughts on that one is, why is that something, a, a kind of approach that you quite like? And is there a risk that potentially that approach is too um, precautionary as it is? You know, it's, it's relatively less precautionary than what's happening elsewhere, but could the UK do even better in terms of being pro-innovation when it comes to AI? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think there's a lot to like about the UK framework, uh, especially uh, as it's been revised most recently. Uh, let me begin by saying something that'll sound somewhat trite or simplistic, which is that when it comes to innovation culture, words matter. The words that policymakers use to talk about acts of entrepreneurialism and innovation really matter deeply to how much innovation we can expect out of a country uh, and its, uh, this, its people. This is kind of Digi McCloskey's argument about uh, you know, bourgeois virtues. Yeah, Deirdre McCloskey, Joel McCurr, and you could trace it all the way back to Adam Smith himself, right? I mean, that th this is a this is an important thing, so-called innovation culture. And right off the bat, with the title of the new UK document, it's called a pro-innovation approach. And in the press release announcing it, they the the government said its its goal primarily is to quote unquote turbocharge growth. Now, by contrast, we turn to the Biden administration in, in the United States. And it kicks off its Bill of Rights in just the first two or three sentences by talking about algorithmic system as being, quote unquote, these are right out of the blueprint for the Bill of Rights for Biden, unsafe, ineffective, biased, deeply harmful, threaten the rights of the American public, used to limit our opportunities and prevent access to critical resources and services. Uh, I mean, that says if, if I'm an innovator in the AI space and I'm looking at what Joe Biden's doing compared to the UK government, I'm saying I'm welcome over there in the UK, but I'm not so welcome here in the US because words matter. Attitudes uh, matter about innovation. I mean, I went, didn't, I, I did a count of the UK document that just came out to figure out how many times it used the terms agile or agility and flexible or flexibility with reference to its policy approach towards AI. The answer is 21 times. I did that same search of the Biden document for agility and flexibility being mentioned, and it was once. Basically, the top-down kind of precautionary principle vision that I fear is, is embodied in what the Biden administration proposes with its so-called Bill of Rights, which is more sounding like a Bill of Regulations. But the UK government, while not saying we're not going to, you know, it's not saying we're never going to regulate, it said we've got a lot of regulatory capacity. We've got a lot of capabilities. We've got a big government that already has a lot of capacity to deal with these issues. Let's figure out how to do this in a in an agile, iterative, ongoing, flexible, collaborative fashion. That's the right approach. That's more rooted in the idea of permissionless innovation, but understands we do need to have a regulatory backstop and governance needs to happen. 
it just doesn't hit you over the head with it as a sledgehammer up front. Say we got to have a new agency, a new law, a single silver bullet solution to solve every one of these theoretical problems having to do with algorithmic innovation. That's insanity, in my opinion. That's the death of innovation. And so the UK, I think, has properly positioned itself as the new global standard uh, of like permissionless innovation on AI. Now, that being said, it has the backstop in there. It talks about the need for addressing all of the concerns we went through from bias to privacy to security and so on. But it's not with a new overarching top-down approach. It's utilizing existing regulatory capacity creatively and then filling in gaps as necessary. That's a smart approach to governing emerging technologies in my opinion. So a, a, a critic of the UK's approach might say, I mean, A, it doesn't do enough to deal with potential risks, particularly perhaps on the existential side. But in addition to that, they might have a more, I suppose, fundamental disagreement with you that if, if you want to get innovation, what you don't just need kind of a, a pro-innovation mindset, you actually need regulation. This is an argument that's often used for, for regulation and in fact is used for regulation in other sectors in the UK these days, which is if you want to ensure public trust, um, then you need to demonstrate that the sector is properly regulated and that there's a risk yeah. of under-regulating and then uh, a big kind of, I suppose, public pushback that ends up ruining the, the technological development. Now, maybe that's more of a political economy argument these days and maybe it's maybe an argument around safety culture, potentially, that you have this, what, what justifies a lot of what the EU does, a lot of what the UK government does and the US is just people's priority and they put on, on safety rather than seeing like you and I might about being pro-innovation. Well, whenever I hear this argument about the need for new comprehensive top-down regulation in order to create consumer trust uh, and get more innovation, I always ask whoever poses this uh, point to say, well, what do you think about the European Union? <laughs> because the European Union has regulation coming out the ears, and it just doesn't result in a lot more innovation. In fact, it's been a death knell for innovation in the digital space in the European Union. And, you know, I, I ask a lot of crowds and my students when I'm teaching, you know, name me a leading digital technology innovator headquartered in the European Union today. I know a few, but the reality is most people can't name any. And that's because the innovation culture is stacked with endless rules, regulations, compliance requirements and costs that make it so that an innovation culture really can't take hold. In fact, in many ways, the EU has an anti-innovation culture, and they now brag openly about the fact that they're exporting regulation, and that's the leading export that they have on the digital technology front. That's no way to create a hotbed of new innovation for something like AI and uh, algorithmic technologies. And so the UK, post-Brexit, has a, a really enormously, incredibly opportunistic moment for itself to like blossom into the new hotbed of innovation, especially as the U.S. rethinking its permissionless innovation approach in the Internet age. Um, and so I, I think, you know, the U.K.'s new document structures itself as being a nice go-between of the U.S. and the EU models. Now, of course, for U.K. innovators, you got to deal with how you're going to comply with things like GDPR and other sort of continental rules. But the bottom line is to answer that question about consumer trust, I think you can build trust in a model that says, like, we're going to have more innovation and that's going to be the primary driver of, you know, uh, public good. And I think the UK has that opportunity, whereas the U the, Euro the European Union squandered it. So on, on, on that, the, the EU squandering it, what have you seen the EU talking about when it comes to this kind of EU approach to, to AI policy and, and potentially some kind of uh, super regulator or interventionist um, view and focus on, I suppose, the dangers of AI. 
Right. So the European Union is moving. It's advancing its so-called AI Act, and it's got a, a a lot of provisions having to do with how various types of AI services will be regarded by level of risks. And it's good that they've, they've taken a so-called risk-based approach where they're trying to identify the, the risks associated with potential uh, algorithmic innovations. But the problem is, is that in, in the way they've set it up, almost everything is a high risk that would require some sort of what's called a prior conformity assessment, which is basically a precautionary principle-based approach that would say, you need to come get our blessing before you do anything. And you know, I, I just think that's once again, setting itself up for failure. And I, I'm worried that that's going to ultimately drive a lot of innovators and investment out of the European continent. But hey, that's good news for the UK and the US. This is exactly what happened over the last 25 years in the digital revolution is that all of that money and uh, all of the best investors uh, and innovators rather flowed out of the UK, I'm sorry, out of the EU and into the UK and the US because we live in a world of global innovation arbitrage and innovators are gonna go to wherever they're treated most hospitably. And I think this is, we're gonna have a replay of this on the AI front because of the very burdensome compliance heavy costly regulatory regime that the EU is setting up. Um, I, uh, you know, what's stunning about this is that the, Europe should be a hotbed of AI innovation. And there's many brilliant companies and people there and amazing research institutions. Um, but at the end of the day, if the innovation culture is stacked against acts of entrepreneurialism on a new technology front, then people are just going to leave or they're just not going to do it. They're going to go somewhere else. And uh, I think that's what's going to happen again. Yeah. Talking about your kind of culture of innovation, I was interested in your most recent paper. Um, it describes the kind of two different historical periods when it comes to innovation in the US context um, and, and what we can learn from that. Uh, and you kind of focus in, in the first instance on telecommunications companies and media companies, and then you contrast that with the approach to the internet. That's right. So in the old days, in the analog era, uh, as we sometimes refer to it, um, innovators were immediately put into an, what I'll call what I call an innovation cage. They were told that if you want to do any, anything in the world of telephony or broadcasting or cable television or whatever, you had to first come seek someone's blessing to do it. And we had an incredibly convoluted top-down regulatory regime in the United States, and of course in the UK as well, where you we also had nationalization in in the UK and many other nations. Uh, of these ICT, information and communications technology systems. This was a uniform disaster for consumers. You, you had very limited choice and in innovation. Back in those days, and I'm, I'm an old enough old dinosaur that I can remember those days, we used to think that innovation in the world of telephony was when you got a different color phone and a longer cord for it. <laughs> you know, and then, and then all of a sudden, wireless technology came along and really started shaking things up. And then, of course, the Internet came along. And in the United States in the 1990s, the nation made a very conscious choice policy wise to make a firm break with the analog era past and put a firewall in place of sorts that says we're not going to treat new digital services the way we did analog services. And so essentially, the Internet and digital technologies were, as I call them, born free as opposed to being born into regulatory captivity. And this changed everything uh, through a series of public statements and documents, including most notably the 1997 Framework for Global Electronic Commerce, and the fact that we passed a Telecommunications Act in 1996 in the United States that notably just basically didn't discuss the internet, just said like, uh, we'll let it do whatever it wants. We're, we're more focused on regulating telecom still and uh, broadcasting. 
And and the results are pretty clear. I mean, 25 years later, we've had one of the most amazing natural real world experiments in comparative governance. As you look trans, in a transatlantic sense between the EU model, which basically continued on with the analog era regulatory mindset and applied it to the digital and Internet space and got very little out of that. Whereas in the United States, when we made this break and created a policy experiment where we gave freedom to the new technologies in town, they blossomed and investment followed and the venture capital world uh, sank a lot of money into uh, digital and internet-based technologies. So here we have this choice again. We're, we're, here we are uh, in 2023 and we're contemplating as nations, the UK and the US and now the European Union, You know, do we double down on the old regime and go forward? And the, and the European Union is saying, yeah, we are. We're gonna just basically take our precautionary principle mindset and extend it as far as the eye can see for every technology that comes along. Um, the U.S., unfortunately, seems to be turning a different direction, turning its back on the idea of permissionless innovation and going in a more heavy-handed direction. But it's not clear yet how this will play out. Also, the American legislative process is a dysfunctional mess. And so it might be that we don't get any policy made at all. And we don't get any tech policy in the United States anymore. It's, a, it's something worth discussing. Like, we don't get tech bills Everything is at the agency level. Mm. But the UK is particularly uniquely situated because of post-Brexit being able to say, we no longer have to take whatever Brussels tries to shove down our throats as the law of the land. We can go our own path and chart a different direction, but clearly, obviously still address the concerns that are out there. But I, I, I look at the way the UK is proposing it right now as being essentially the old US model. Mm -hmm. And I wish the Biden administration would find a way to partner with the UK and say, like, this should be our model to counter not only what Europe's doing, but what China's doing on this front and many other nations, which is the heavy-handed, top-down type of command and control approaches to uh, governing emerging technologies. We don't need those. Well, on that relatively optimistic note, Adam, thank you so much for joining us uh, for the IEA podcast. And that's Adam Thera from the Austrian Institute, a, a true hero of, of technology policy and history. Um, if you're enjoying the IA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider, or you can also subscribe to the IA's YouTube channel. And if you're interested in learning more about the IA, you can visit IA.org.uk.